Let's dive in. Here's a little bit of context for you, okay? The nation of Israel found themselves in complete exile and captivity. Uh, I walked you through all of that the first two weeks that we talked about. They, they, and this was just a pattern of their history. They wound up in slavery in Egypt. Then they were complaining. They were rebelling. They wound up in the wilderness. They complained. They rebelled. They wound up in the promised land. They complained. They rebelled. God begged them to quit. And they said, well, we'll, we'll think about it. We'll consider it. So he said, okay, next comes exile, then exile happens. Once exile happens and they wind up uh, completely stripped out of their land, they take the land and, and when exile would occur, they would take the religious leaders, the political leaders, and the educated, they would pull them out of the land and they would only leave the poor in the land. Then they would bust down all the walls exposing them and then they would burn every building to the ground. So there were just piles of rubble everywhere. It, it, Jerusalem at the time had been completely destroyed, broken down, and crumbled. So Nehemiah, after 70 years, is the cupbearer for the king of Persia. He goes to him and he says, hey, um, I, the king asked him, why are you so upset? And he said, well, my land lies in rubble. And he said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to go rebuild it. And the king said, okay, I'll let you go. So he heads out and he starts to rebuild this. He gets the resources from neighboring governors. He raises all the support that he needs. 52 days later, he rebuilds it. We go from chapter 4, Sanballat saying, do you really believe that you can do something with these burnt stones? To 52 days later, completing the walls. Because burnt stones, ah, a little more life. Burnt stones, there you go, they build again. The Lord can build again with him. So he rebuilds the walls, but he's still dealing with a broken people. And now that he goes to confront the broken people, we went through this last week. I think it was, what, chapters 8, 9, and 10. He walks them through three things to deal with their brokenness. Number one, understanding God. What does the joy of the Lord actually mean, and how does it give me strength? The second thing that he did is he led them to a place of intimacy. They're listening to the word for hours. They're worshiping for hours. They're in confession, and they're confessing unto the Lord. The third thing is he leads them into a covenant. If you've really enjoyed burnt stones, here's a fun study for you. Take that covenant that they enter into with God in chapter 10 and compare it to everything they do and screw up with in chapter 13. It is nearly identical. It's nearly identical. In chapter 10, they're saying, we will honor the temple. In chapter 13, they disgrace the temple. In chapter 10, they're saying, we will honor the Lord with our relationships. In chapter 13, they're marrying foreign women who worship foreign gods. They're saying to the Lord, we will honor the priests and the Levites and the singers. In chapter 13, they're starving and have to go back to the fields. Literally everything that they commit to in chapter 10, they screw up by chapter 13. In fact, let me give you a comparison, Nehemiah 12, 43. This is wrapping up, so the walls are built. Once the walls are built, they're worshiping, they're celebrating, everything is great. They have this worship experience to commence the final uh, walls being built. And as they gather together, Nehemiah 12, 43, I already read it once, May sac many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day, for God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and children also participated in the celebration, and the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard from far away. Catch this. They're worshiping so loud, neighboring cities can hear them. 
They're going nuts. They're worshiping. They're excited. They're in covenant. They understand God. They're walking in intimacy. And then Nehemiah goes to King Artaxerxes to give him a report of all the great things that God is doing. And he comes back to a disaster. And listen to what he says, Nehemiah 13, 25. He says, so I confronted them and called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Get ready, it's coming for you too. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. What in the world happened? How do you go from worshiping for hours on end, listening to the word for hours on end, to Nehemiah ripping their hair out, slapping them, and, and calling them into covenant, saying, you will swear to me that you will never, ever do this again. I read that, and I'm like, what happened? Like, it started off so good. You have know, never heard a sermon on Nehemiah 13. You know where most people end it? Chapter 9. It's the most convenient place to end a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. They're worshiping for three hours. They're praising for three more. They're confessing everything. By the time you get to the end, it's over with. What happened? You know what this is? This is that surprise family trip to Galveston. That's what this is. Do you know the last time I took a surprise family trip to Galveston? I don't either. I think I had one less kid because it's horrible. It's a terrible idea. My Enneagram 7 wakes up one Saturday morning and says, hey, I got a great idea. It's never a great idea. He says, hey, what if we go to Galveston for the day and take the kids? I'm, I'm like, okay, I can't be a buzzkill all the time. All right. Okay, sounds like a great idea. Let's leave at 9. At 11.30, we're still packing. Right? And they, they say it's less than two hours away. Galveston is never less than two hours away. I don't care where you're at. That's a lie. It's never less than two hours away. So we take off for Galveston, and we're smiling, and we're laughing, and we're listening to a Spotify Beach Jams playlist, and everything's great. And then we hit traffic. And then we sit in traffic. And we sit forever in traffic. And then one of my sons, Canaan, has to go to the bathroom. So we give him a water bottle because we're stuck in traffic, right? He's got the aim of a three-year-old at the time, and so that works out great, right? So now we're all sitting in the car. It smells like a Love's truck stop, and it's just the whole thing. We're frustrated. We're arguing with each other. It's like three hours in, and we're nowhere close. We finally get to Galveston at like 6 o'clock, and the beach is packed. I'm like, no, not bringing my kids here. So we drive another 40 minutes to the west end, right? The seaweed end, right? So we land at all of these mountains of seaweed. The kids get out. We play for like 30 minutes, and then we're like, okay, it's, it's bedtime. This is great. It's a wonderful idea, right? So then we load up in the car. They're tired. They're fighting. They're fussing. Anna and I are annoyed. We pulled into the driveway. It's three and a half hours past the kids' bedtime. We finally get them to bed, and then I walk out. I open up the back. There's enough gear in there for a month at the beach, right? You go for an afternoon, and you pack a cooler. You pack a secondary cooler. You pack 17 chairs and a tent and towels and never touch any of it. And I'm looking at it, and I'm saying to myself, what happened? Like, this was supposed to be fun, they said. 
quick beach day to Galveston. Let's have a blast. It'll be great. We'll get great pictures. The kids will have so much fun. What is going on? It's where Nehemiah's at. Nehemiah's like, man, when I left you, you couldn't stop worshiping. Now I show up and I want to rip your hair out. Like, what is going on here? And so he finishes Nehemiah 13. And this is going to feel a little different. And it should by design. We're not ending the season in chapter 9 where we're all leaving here ready to worship for six hours on end. We're leaving it contemplating. We're leaving it asking ourselves difficult questions. And here's what every question revolves around. Holiness. Holiness. What does Nehemiah do in chapter 13 to finish up this roller coaster of a season? He calls the people to holiness. You know why? Because you can build a great wall and still be miserable inside. You know why? Because you can build everything you wanted to build from an earthly standpoint and still be miserable right here without holiness. You can get the bank account to the level that you've always wanted it to be and still be miserable. I used to have someone say, the bigger the home, the bigger the problems. You can, you can build an incredible company, an admirable company, a wonderful company, and you can do it in a short amount of time. You can do it in 52 days, be doing $20 million in revenue and be miserable right here. You can build the dream home with the white picket fence and the huge porch and enough swings for the city and everything else and still be miserable right here when holiness doesn't exist right here. He takes the people who have, who have been through all of this chaos and they thought building a wall would fix it, but building a wall won't fix it. You, nothing on the outside is going to fix internal deficiency. Nothing out here is going to fix what's broken right here. It has to start here and it starts with holiness. Here's what I want to do. I want to walk you through chapter 13. And there's a, there's a lot here. We're going to go four different areas. In all four different areas, he tries to restore holiness to a people. Because you can have a wonderful wall and great protection and no holiness in here and be miserable. And be broken. And be falling constantly for the same old things we see over and over and over. So, I'm going to walk you through each section. I'm going to give you the tag at the very beginning. And then we're going to talk about holiness throughout. Number one. Nehemiah 13, 4 through 9, holiness, catch me now, holiness is protecting the purity of God's space in our life. Holiness is protecting. There is a protection to holiness that you can't get past here. You can't come to this place with me. And if you do desire to come here and you are not living the way you need to be lived, you are not going to have entry into the temple of my heart. Holiness is protecting the purity of God's space in our lives. Listen to this. If you have been with us for the, the whole season that we're walking through, your mind is going to be blown when you hear this. This is verse 4. Before this had happened, Eliashib, the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God. This is the guy who's over the storage of the offerings. Who had been appointed this, of the showrooms of the temple of our God. And who was also a relative of Tobiah. 
Where have we heard that name before? Chapter 2, who was standing next to Sanballat when resistance rose up against the wall? Chapter 4, who had the corny joke about the fox? Not even a fox could run on top of that wall and it would crumble, right? Tobiah. Tobiah was resistance the entire time. This guy's related to Tobiah. Verse 5, it says, he had converted a large storeroom and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. What? Like, this is one of three guys that has been doing everything they could to destroy the work of God in this place, and you're letting him sleep here? Ooh, I could go somewhere with that. This person is trying to upend you spiritually. You're letting him lay in bed with you? They're trying to destroy what God wants to do. God wants to do something great in you. And you've opened your door. You've given them space. They're staying with Like, what are we talking about? Is anybody else blown away? Anybody else like, what? They're letting Tobiah live in the storeroom? The place he was trying to destroy? So the room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, catch this, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. Just hold right there. Let's skip to verse 10. I'll read you verse 10 really quick. (laughs) Listen to the challenge that they run into. I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food, so they and the singers who were conducting the worship services had all returned to the fields to work. I wonder why. You put a lying cheat over everything in the storeroom, you let him live there, he distributes it however he pleases, and now you can't have a priest, you can't worship because they're having to work in the fields because you're giving away the very thing that God is trying to build. You're giving it away. God does a work on Sunday and you give it away on Monday. God does a work in you through a worship night. And by the time the weekend comes, they're back at your house. He's saying, guys, what are we doing? What are we doing? Verse 6, I was not in Jerusalem at that time. For I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. I thought, although I asked later his permission to return, when I arrived Back in Jerusalem, I learned of Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. Verse 8, I became very upset. You think? Man's risked his life over and over and over to rebuild protection for a group of people that are going to open their doors, clear out a room, and let the enemy live there. What? I became very upset. Not only that, oh, I love this, eviction notice, and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. I took all his junk and I threw it out. Nehemiah had to have been in Enneagram 8, right? He's putting up with nothing. He's like, you're out and so's all your stuff, buddy. And he's throwing his junk out of the temple. He throws him out of there. Verse 9, don't miss this. This is so important. Then I demanded that the rooms 
be purified. The purification ritual of the temple was to restore the holiness of God. In other words, he is saying what we had done had broken holiness, so I restored holiness by removing it out of the temple and purifying that place. There is purification that has to take place to restore the holiness of God. He is calling them back to holiness, and the first thing he's doing is serving eviction. My uh, dad, when my dad passed away, he owned a trailer, and I uh, went there to help uh, do whatever I could, and, and I was the only one. My uncle was like, buddy, it's yours. Have fun with it, right? And so I showed up there at this trailer, and I walked into the trailer, and I started just going through all of his stuff. I started removing stuff, and then I was working in a storage shed, and I came back around, and this woman ran inside of the trailer, and she locked the door. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Uh, and I went up and I knocked on the door. And by the way, we resolved this, and I love her now. We, everything was great. But at the moment, I was like, wow, this is interesting. I knock on the door, and I said, hey, can I get in my dad's trailer? And she said, no, you have to have my permission. I live here. I was like, what? She said, yes, I, I live here. I've been renting a room from your dad. You have to have my permission to enter in. Now, she was scared. She thought we were going to take all her stuff and throw her out and everything else. And, and I totally get her fear. But in the moment, I had no idea what was going on. So we called the sheriff, and the sheriff showed up here. And when the sheriff was there, I went up to the sheriff, and he said, what's going on? I said, uh, this is my dad's trailer. My dad has died. I'm here to clean it out. There's a woman in there that's renting a room from my dad, and I'm trying to get in, and she won't let me in. She says, I have to have her permission. And he said, she's right. <laughs> Excuse me? Like, tell me that. Say that one more time, because I thought, I, look, I'm a preacher in the middle of a trailer park. Everyone's standing on their gravel, you know, driveways looking at me, and I'm sitting there with the sheriff and a woman locked in a trailer, right? Great scenario for me. And so I'm like, uh, give me that again. Like, what? And he said, yes. He said, the rules of uh, renters, the, the rights of a tenant here in the state of Kansas are you have to have their permission and give them at least 24 hours notice before you can come in. I said, are you serious? And then he said, yes. And he said, you have to be very careful who you give space in your home to. We would be smart to heed the words of that sheriff spiritually. We have to be very careful who we give room to in the temple of our heart. We have to be very careful what we allow to come in. And I am telling you, we live in a time where there is more ridiculous information shoved down our throats than ever before. And I'm just telling you, if you're recognizing that something is burning up the holiness in your spirit because you're allowing the wrong things to take residence in there, it is time to do what Nehemiah did, which is throw that stuff out and take everything along with it and purify the places of your heart. Aren't you thankful that we don't have to give the enemy 24 hours notice to get him out of our heart? Aren't you thankful the blood of Christ gives us an eviction notice where we can say, hey, look, you're here, but not anymore. You are out of here. Part of holiness is purifying the places that you have allowed the enemy to dwell. So first place to contemplate when it comes to restoring holiness is what is living in your house. Spiritually, what have you given room to that should not be living there at all? 
What have you given room to that if Nehemiah was your pastor, he would roll in there and he would say, what are you doing? Like we're building something here and you're letting the enemy live right in the center of it. And God forbid they're in your bed. What are we doing? That's the first place to contemplate. Renewing holiness is purifying the space that God occupies in our soul. Number two, holiness is prioritizing the things of God. Nehemiah 13, 10 through 14. It says, I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food, so they and the singers who were conducting the worship services had all returned to work their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, this is so interesting, why has the temple of God been neglected. The first thing that they covenanted to do in chapter 10 was protect the temple of God. The first thing he's confronting, he's saying, why Why are you neglecting the temple? Why aren't you sowing into what God's doing? Why aren't you faithful to it? Why aren't you involved? Like, what? Why are you neglecting the one place where God wants to meet you? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began to bring their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the temple storerooms. I assigned supervisors for the storerooms, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah one of the Levites. And I appointed Hanan, son of Zakur, and grandson of Mahatani as their assistant. More Harry Potter characters. These men had an excellent reputation. Notice who got replaced, Eliashib. Eliashib, the one who had the opportunity, the one who was leading, who gave Tobiah his relative a place. He's gone now. He's out. These men had an excellent reputation, and it was their job to make honest distributions to follow to their fellow Israelites. Listen to what Nehemiah please. Verse 14, remember this good deed, O oh my God, and do not forget all I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and its services. His question, why have you neglected the temple of God, is applicable today in this way. Why are we not prioritizing the things of God? Why are we not prioritizing the things that God wants us to be doing? Why do we allow these little distractions to rob us over and over again of the holiness that God is trying to sow into us? God's trying to do something in us, and we allow everything but Him to distract us from it. He's saying, why are we neglecting it? This should be number one priority. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here and to everybody online. We're in the temple of God and we're, we're here figuratively. We're meeting with God and we're worshiping God. But why do we allow so many things to try and rob us from it instead of prioritizing the things of God? That's his question. Why, have, why is it neglected? Why is it not as important? I don't know. For me, it's, I think of my diet. What's going on with me? You know, some of you, you came from a long time ago. You don't even recognize me now. I gained 27 pounds after COVID. What? 27 pounds. Look at me like I'm the only one. There wasn't anything to do but eat fast food. I was on a rotation. Whataburger, Taco Bell, Chick-fil-A. You have American food, Mexican food, God's food. All there. I just rotated them. That's all I did for like 
four months afterwards, I was like, wow, these skinny jeans don't fit well. <laughs> I'm in trouble. What am I even saying right now? I don't know. But I, I remember there was a time where I looked at my priorities, and I was like, man, um, I need to change some things with my diet. So I did, and it was great. I lost like 15 pounds. And then after I did that, I was like, okay, I'm good. And I really missed those, you know, Whataburger taquitos in the morning, and I, I missed my spicy chicken sandwiches, and I missed uh, like 17 nacho grandes, right? I, I just miss it. So then I made this deal with myself. I said, I'm going to do one cheat meal and one dessert a week, right? And it worked out great. It was, it was wonderful. And then you know what I did? I, I started thinking, well, I need more. I deserve more. I'm doing good, right? So now I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just cheat on the weekends, and I'll eat healthy Monday through Friday. But then something happened. You know I take Fridays off, right? So Friday's my day off, and Anna and I go to lunch on Friday, and we go date night Friday night, and you can't eat a salad at date night. Like, that's just, and, and you can't not share a dessert, right? It's date night. you got to have some fun. So then uh, I start eating bad on Fridays as well, and then Anna starts this thing where since Friday is our day off, it's kind of like our Saturday, then Thursday must be our Friday. So we should do pizza on Thursday nights. So how can you turn down pizza with your family, right? I want to be a good dad. I want to be a, you know, honorable husband. I want to have pizza with my family. So then I started doing pizza on Thursdays. And then I realized something. I went from having this priority of one time, once a week, to all of a sudden I started doing a little math. I was like, man, something's not right about me. What's going on? So I started thinking, uh, I eat healthy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday... I'm living that life, right? I'm catching a vibe and just going. Like, something is wrong with my priorities. So I start making priority changes, and guess what? I start seeing the difference in my life. The question to contemplate now is where are my spiritual priorities? When it comes to God's holiness, if I were to take the same exercise and wrap it around my devotional life, man, I used to meet with God seven days a week. Boy, me and Jesus, we were, we were on it. Everything was going great. And then I started getting busy, started having these things on the weekends, and we kicked it down to five days a week. And then, you know, I started this new job, and I had this new time to be there, and we're at three days a week. And all, it, we begin to evaluate priorities. Part of restoring holiness is evaluating our priorities. Number three, holiness is practicing the things God finds Holy. Say that again. Holiness is practicing the things that God finds holy. Nehemiah 13, 15 through 22. We're going to bite off a big chunk here. In those days, I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. Verse 17, so I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way? Verse 18, this is an ironic question if you understand Jewish history. Wasn't it just this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us and our city? Now you're bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath 
to be desecrated in this way. How did they break the Sabbath when they were in the wilderness and God was providing manna and he said six days a week I will give it, store it on Saturday, you'll have extra on Sunday. But what did they do? They went out on the Sabbath looking for more manna. This was the breaking point in the wilderness. God was done with them. I just want to kill them. I just, I'm going to kill them. There, this is time and time and time again. And Moses goes and Moses pleads. And he says, God, give me one more chance to fix these hard-headed, rebellious people. They've already done this. Like, they know this. This is not rocket science. Holiness is not rocket science. It is just practicing the things that God finds holy. Let's skip down now to verse 21. Oh, no, 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 let's stay at 19. I like it. He says, Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be opened until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath. The merchants and tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice. Man, they just don't get it. He's literally like, don't do anything on the Sabbath. They're like, we'll sleep outside the gates. We'll just, we'll just wait for one moment. But I spoke sharply with them and said, what are you doing here camping around the wall? If you do this again, the hard Hebrew translation for I will arrest you is I will physically hurt you. <laughs> He's literally saying, if you do this again, I'm going to knock your teeth out. Like, if you do this again, I'm going to throw you a whipping and you're going to remember it. He's just so tight. He's like, guys, I'm going to beat you up if you don't start doing what you should do. And that was, the, imagine this, and that was the last time that they came on the Sabbath. I think our camping trips are over. <laughs> oh, I have an inner Nehemiah. I'm just telling you. I do. I have an inner Nehemiah that I just connect with. Verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites to purify once again. What's he say? Purity. What does he call them to again? Purity. To purify themselves and guard the gates in order to what? Preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. Holiness is practicing the things that God finds holy. It is practicing the practices, the disciplines that God calls us to, to be holy. We have to practice what God calls holy. I was listening to a podcast uh, called Origins. It's, it's really, really great. Um, and they go to the, the origins of great things like dynasties. They do a lot of sports, but they cover some companies and, and other things. And they were doing one on Pastor Nick Saban. I, I love Nick Saban. Is like I'm just a huge fan of Nick Saban. I'm not a huge Alabama football fan, but I'm a huge Nick Saban fan. And they had uh, one of his offensive coordinators on there, and they were asking him this question. They're like, what makes Nick Saban Nick Saban? And one of them said, practice. And so they, I think it was Lane Kiffin. They asked Lane Kiffin. They said, all right, so tell me what that means. And he said, okay, so there was this time where we were running a play, and we just couldn't get it right in practice. And he made us do it over and over and over. He said, we must have done it 75, 100 times. And every time, he said, nope, that guy was, that guy's steps were off. Nope, that guy wasn't pulling away he should. Nope, that route was wrong in that wide receiver. Nope, he didn't hit the right hole. Nope, he didn't hit it fast enough. Nope, he didn't hit it hard enough. Nope, he didn't do it. He, he just, every single time, he picked it apart. And he said, after 100 times, of running it, they, they finally ran it, and they got it right. They said Saban was standing back there, and he was looking over it, and they were just waiting for him to destroy it, and there was nothing that he could say. So afterwards, they, Lane Kiffin asked him, he said, okay, he said, we got it, right? And he said, yeah, that was the one. That was it. Good job. 
And he said, okay, good, on to the next play. And he said, no, 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 run it again. And Kiffin said, I looked at him, and I said, we've ran it a hundred times. And Saban, he said, fired right back at me. He said, practice is not trying to get things right. Practice is doing the right things over and over and over. He said, you've practiced it once, do it again. Man, when we talk about spiritual things, practice is not just trying to get this right. Practice is doing the right things over and over and over to restore a holiness to our soul. I say this all the time, but at some point we got to get beyond just trying to live above sin. We have got to get beyond just trying to live above sin and start living a powerful, satisfied, destined life by the power of the Holy Spirit to make an impact for His kingdom. If all we're worried about is living one step above sin every week, who's reaching everybody else? That's how you restore holiness. You practice the right things over and over and over again. All right, we'll finish here. Holiness is preserving the things of God. There is a preservation to holiness. There is a, a protection and a preservation that we have to have. Really interesting piece coming up. Nehemiah 13, 23 through 31. It says, about the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from, catch this, Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Three cities throughout that are trying to destroy them. Three groups of people that are trying to destroy them. Where is all the opposition coming from? When they say, Nehemiah, we are surrounded and our enemy wants to crush us. Where are they coming from? These three, and now they're marrying them. They're marrying them, and here's what they're losing. Catch this, verse 24. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. We have to understand language here to know what he's saying. Language at this time was spiritual oppression. Okay, and it, all the way, it was all the way up to the Reformation. Martin Luther translated the Bible in German. Why? Because the Catholic Church was holding people hostage saying, the only way you can come to know God and the only way you can know about God is through me. And they used it as political and religious manipulation because they didn't have a copy of God's word in their language. It was manipulation. It would be like us not having this and me manipulating you and saying, let me tell you what God says since you don't know, since you can't find out. So language was highly oppressive at this time, right? And Nehemiah is saying, you're letting the language that tells the story of our God slip away. How are they going to know what the Torah says? They don't even speak the language now. Saying you're letting the holiness of God fall apart. It's not being preserved. How do we personalize this for today? We're trying to raise godly children, and they don't have a Bible in their room. 
We're trying to, I'm trying to raise a righteous, I'll make it about me. Look, I didn't come here to just beat you up. I'll beat myself up too. I don't preach at you. I preach with you. I'm trying to raise godly kids and I get home at night and I'm tired sometimes and I'm worn out and I don't feel like spending five minutes doing the devotions. So I let it slide and I let him spend five minutes on his tablet, on YouTube, watching Stephen share while I sit there and veg out and scroll Instagram. And then we're done. I put him to bed. I go sit in my office and pray for him. And I'm like, Lord, will you raise a godly kid? Will you raise a godly man? And the Lord says, well, why don't you teach him? He's not going to learn it through osmosis by watching dad do devotions in the morning. Like, this is what we're talking about. He's saying you kids don't even speak the language. What he's saying is they don't know who God is. You're not sowing that life into them. You're not sowing that faith into them. It's drifting away. So he says, your children don't even speak the language of Judah at all. Translation, they don't even know who God is. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. Here we go. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. Here's another example from their past, verse 26. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? What did Solomon do? He married a Moabite woman. And then what did he start doing? He started offering, he started offering offerings on the Moabites' altar. And then he started drifting into the faith of their God because he broke the covenant to not, out, to not intermarry with pagan gods. So he says, I demanded there was no king from any nation who could compare to him. And God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin with his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed? How, I mean, like, what in your mind? Could he, I'll, I'll tell you what, what in their mind could do it. Lack of holiness. When holiness is gone, you lose your sense you lose your sense for what God wants to do. You, 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 you hear these questions. He's saying, why would you neglect the temple of God? Why, why would you even think of doing this? Why would you give Tobiah a room in the temple? Like, what are we doing? It's because when holiness is gone, we lose our sense of what is right and what is wrong in the kingdom of God. It fades out of our minds. I, um, you, veteran parents, you're going you're gonna to know what this is like. Man, there's nothing worse than opening up a car door and getting the whiff of something that's been left in the car, right? Come on, right? Am I, am I right? What are some of the worst things that have been left? I mean, food is a, a given, right? Food happens all the time, right? I find a 17-year-old, you know, chicken nugget in my car, and it's finally started stinking, right? Had enough preservatives to last that long. But then, uh, what else? A diaper. We've left a diaper in the car, right? It was just, oh my gosh. In the middle of summer, you open the door, and it's just hits you, right? Am I talking to myself or are there other parents in this room? Y'all are just clean. Your cars are clean. You vacuum them out every day. You clean out all the food, everything else. Oh, I get it. Y'all are perfect. Just make fun of me some more, right? I'll tell you the worst thing I have ever had left in my vehicle though, protein shaker. Pro am I right or am I right? Listen, you got 24 hours with those things. 
You have 24 hours. You close that shaker, shake that thing up, drink it. If you do not clean that out in 24 hours, it is the worst smelling thing I've ever experienced in my life. I was in my truck, and one of my children opened one that I had left accidentally under the seat. And I mean, I had to stop and roll the windows down and get out. It was so bad. It was terrifying. But you know what's even worse than that? I remember this, just popped into my head looking, glancing at you, is uh, right after COVID, I'd lost my sense of smell, right? Um, Still kind of don't have it back very good, but I mean, uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I remember walking into my office, and uh, when I walked in, Andy had candles lit everywhere. I mean, there were just, there were candle here, candle there, candle lit in his office. He was in there, door was closed, and I walked in there, I was like, okay, maybe, you know, let incense arise. Maybe we're worshiping in here, right? It's a a church office after all. And so then I went, I sat down at my desk, and I looked, and I had had H-E-B's barbecue like several days ago, and I had thrown the trash left over from chicken. I had thrown it in my trash, trash bag right next to my desk, and I can't smell anything. And I looked down, and I saw it, and I said, hey, Andy. He said, yeah. I said, does it smell like chicken in here? Yes, yes, like really bad. I'm like, dude, you could have told me, you know, I would, I would handle it. But you know what's even scarier than bad smells and bad things is not being able to smell them. You know what is scary about holiness? If it's gone, you can't smell the stuff that's right under your nose. And we're sitting here talking about the wrong things taking up residence. Why are you neglecting the temple? Why are you allowing that person into your home? How could you even think of doing that? And the first, for the first time in maybe years, you're catching a sniff. You're smelling something. You're starting to say, you know what? Maybe I need to make a step in holiness. Maybe I need to clear something out. Maybe I need to purify something. That's how Nehemiah ends. And I think as we wrap up this season, yes, burnt stones build again, but how do they stay strong? Holiness. Let's just chant that one more time. Burnt stones build again, but how do they stay strong? Holiness. Holiness. We've got to learn to live holy. We've got to learn to live holy like God is holy.